We want to review, and we have been reviewing, and this is the last sermon of our questions to Arminians. The doctrine of salvation so that we can turn to Romans chapter 10 next Lord's Day by His grace and renew our study of that wonderful epistle. Let's deal with the subject of evangelism which is closely connected to gospel means. Arminians typically believe that the Great Commission applies as much today as it did to the apostles, and the goal of saving souls justifies any methods, and is the most important goal for churches and believers. It's the mission statement, basically, that missions is the most important thing. And you can go on the internet and look at any church, most any single church today, and it's going to have in its mission statement the importance of keeping the Great Commission in some form even though that was given to the apostles, and since I mentioned some of it earlier, I will be brief on my comments about it now. We need to ask the Arminian, as we review salvation for our confirmation and our pleasure, you know, when we sang, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, this is one way that we love to proclaim it. We ask some questions of Arminianism that does not have answers, as they have a very different gospel of salvation. Mr. Arminian, if you really believe that men go to heaven or hell by what you do, why do you live so comfortably, causing hundreds to spend an eternity in a Christless hell? How can you do that? How can you live comfortably when there are souls dropping into hell because you are not carrying the gospel to them, because you are not giving as much as you could, because you are living comfortably and spending money that could be spent in mission work saving souls? Your money-based idea of salvation is blasphemous in comparison to Scripture. There is going to be no one in hell because someone lived a comfortable life and didn't give enough to the gospel. They're going to be in hell because God was willing to show His power and His wrath on the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Romans 9.22 Mr. Arminian, if gospel means is what saves the lost, and the gospel can only be spread by spending money, is it right to say that sinners are saved by silver and gold? We would have to say that. And yet 1 Peter 1 says, we are not redeemed by silver and gold. Psalm 49 says, no man can give to God a ransom for his brother. There is no price that you can pay to buy a soul winner for your physical brother to get him saved. It wouldn't matter if a man came back from the dead, as we've learned from Luke 16 and verse 31. Mr. Arminian, if sinners must hear the gospel from a human mouth... How many souls are in hell due to human laziness rather than their sins? All these questions have absurd answers because we're dealing with a lie. And when you mess around with the lie asking questions about it, it all comes back absurd. And this is where we end up when we ask an Arminian questions about his doctrine of salvation. Why was the Great Commission never repeated, never mentioned, and never even hinted at in any general epistle of the New Testament. That is a staggering thought. When it is in the mission statement of every church, that it is their purpose to evangelize as a church, why in all the letters to churches, starting with Romans, is it never mentioned? It is never mentioned that you have a burden to go out and save the lost. 
It is never mentioned. It is never hinted at. You are told to go to work and have a Christian work ethic. You are told to love your wife. You are told to submit to your husband. You are told to train your children. You are told to honor your parents. You are told to submit to the government. You are told to keep your vessel in sanctification and honor. You are told to control your speech. And on and on we could go, but not a mention of the Great Commission. Where do they get it from? From the Gospels where Jesus, having risen from the dead, gave an assignment to His eleven apostles and gave them power to go and do things that no man since has been able to do. And they went and did it, Mr. Arminian. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6 says their sound went into all the world. Verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1 says the gospel had been preached before Paul died to every creature under heaven. Isn't that amazing? I remember the first time I heard some of those things. It was, it was mind-blowing to hear that. There isn't even a hint of it in the epistles. Show me in Romans. Show me in Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, any of those epistles. All those words spent on how tongues ought to be used in a New Testament church, but nothing about saving the lost. I've mentioned this before, since we're talking about evangelism, let me mention it again. Why is the love of God never mentioned or hinted at in the entire history of the Acts of the Apostles? All 28 chapters have no mention of the love of God. You would think that it would be on every page. You would think that Peter would have stood up on the day of Pentecost, full of the Holy Ghost, and gone straight to the gospel in a nutshell. And quoted John 3.16. That's what it used to be called. I have seen large walnuts hollowed out with a bent nail on the end that when it was cranked, out would come a piece of paper and on it was John 3.16. The gospel in a nutshell. I'm not making these things up. There's 31,100 other verses in the Bible. And some of them directly contradict what those nuts that have the shell think about John 3.16. But you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be right there with them. It is by His grace. We would would be believing in infant baptismal regeneration. We could believe anything. We could be in the Mormon church. We could be a Russellite. It's by the grace of God and we give Him all the glory. We give Him all the thanks. But we're not going to apologize for the truth. Mr. Arminian, please turn in your Bible, Mr. Arminian, to 2 Timothy 2.10 and just help me understand something. Why does the Apostle Paul say that he endured all things for the elect's sakes? 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You're talking about going everywhere and spreading the gospel to everyone, but Paul didn't talk that way. Paul endured all things for the elect's sake. That was his motive. When he would go preach, no matter where he was preaching, He was seeking to find the elect in that audience. Do you practice that? Do you believe in election? You don't. You're an Arminian. So what do you do with this? Isn't this the greatest evangelist in the history of the world? Why was his evangelism directed toward the elect? 
For my dear brethren that are sitting here, if you mark in your Bible, I would underline the word also that is in the middle of that verse, and I would underline the word with, that is the third word from the end of the verse, and draw a line between them, because it will help you understand the verse. Because the verse is to be understood this way. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. If the doctrine of salvation that we teach is true, why did Paul have to do anything for the elect? They are going to have eternal life by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost without Paul. So what is Paul enduring all the persecution that he did endure for the elect's sakes? Because there is another phase of salvation that he wanted to bring those elect. God guaranteed their eternal glory, but there is another salvation along with eternal glory that he also wanted to get them. That's why we have the words also and with highlighted. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation. We have two salvations here. We have another aspect of salvation that Paul wanted to get for the elect. The fact that they are called the elect shows that their eternal destiny is already guaranteed by the chain of God's predestinating grace in Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30. But there's a salvation that Paul could be instrumental in bringing to them. And that is the salvation of the gospel where they would hear about God and what He had done for them in Christ Jesus, what they could do for Him in return, and what was held in store for them after they die. So the word also is modifying the salvation, that they may also obtain the salvation, another salvation, along with eternal glory. And that also, and that word with, help us understand that Paul has two things in mind. God's election gets them their eternal glory, Paul, enduring all things, gets them another phase of salvation, which we fully understand. Tony recently told me about 1 Corinthians 15.2 that the gospel must be kept in memory in order to save people and that you can lose your salvation if you're talking about the salvation of 1 Corinthians 15.2. Tony taught me this recently. Because Tony pointed out that in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. There is a very real salvation in the gospel when it tells us the good news of the resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, and this life is all there is, and we're living lives of self-denial, we are of all men most miserable because we ain't getting heaven and we ain't getting the flesh or carnal living while we're here. So we're, we're losing on both ends. We lose-lose if there's no resurrection of the dead. But the whole point being, if you forget that there's a resurrection of the dead, you lose that salvation of the gospel. That's the salvation Paul endured all things that he could carry to men. God elected them to eternal glory, but there was another salvation that he also wanted them to have, and that's the gospel. Mr. Arminian... Why does Paul talk about enduring all things for the elect's sakes? Because Paul believed in election and you don't. Mr. Arminian, in Acts chapter 17, it tells us that Paul's manner was to go into synagogues and reason with them out of the Scriptures. Have you ever thought about why Paul went to synagogues rather than brothels? Why did Paul go to synagogues and why does the Bible tell us that was his ordinary method? 
Why did he go to preach the gospel to people that were already Bible believers and Bible readers? Because they didn't know the full message of the New Testament yet is our answer. Mr. Arminian doesn't have an answer. Because in Mr. Arminian's mind, Paul should have been at the mall. Paul should have been putting tracks under windshield wipers at the mall. But he wasn't. He was going to synagogues to find men that feared God because he knew among them would be God's elect. And he endured all things for the elect's sakes. Now, Mr. Arminian, I'm not sure where you stand because Arminians vary on this subject. But if those who have never heard the gospel have a free grace road to heaven like infants, and many believe that, there's two questions that men often ask. What about babies? What about the heathen? The heathen being pagans living in pagan countries that never heard about Jesus Christ. What happens to them? Do they get sent to hell because Americans were too lazy to send them missionaries? Then that means they don't go to hell for their sins. They don't really go to hell for the sin of unbelief. They go to, the, to hell for the sin of slothfulness by Americans. Of course, they've never thought that deeply. That's about four questions too deep, and I only asked three. Honestly, if it doesn't have John 3.16 at the end, they've never thought about it. In that verse, they haven't thought about it all because they are so confused about that verse. If those who have never heard the gospel have a free grace road to heaven like infants, does it then stand to reason, Mr. Arminian, that missionaries are the greatest ministers of damnation ever devised? Because if the missionary hadn't gone, they'd go to heaven. But because the missionary went and gave them the gospel, they could then not believe it and go to hell. Therefore, men go to hell because missionaries are sent. Would you please stop? Because you've made previously unaccountable pagans now countable to your Arminian conditional gospel. Why have some, Mr. Arminian, heard the gospel, but most have not? Why have most not heard the gospel? Is it God's fault or Christian's fault or both? Whose fault is it? Why did God turn Paul west and wouldn't let him go north and wouldn't let him go south in Acts chapter 16 verses 8 through 10? Why? What about those souls? Whose fault is that? Paul tried to save them. God wouldn't let him save them. Is rejecting Christ the only condemnation of men, Mr. Arminian? I have heard you say that Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all men. And when I asked you, then what condemns them to hell? You said Jesus didn't die for the sin of unbelief. If rejecting Christ is the only condemnation of men, if so, then you cannot reject Him if you've never heard of Him. If so, then stop sending the gospel and nuke all third world countries. And they'll all go to heaven. That's similar to one I asked earlier, just a little different. Mr. Arminian, let's think about evangelism. I know you're good at it. Your church is growing by leaps and bounds. What were Paul's favorite methods to win the lost? Was it music? A. Or B. Children's church? Or B. A basketball league? Which was his best method? To save the lost. And just remember, Mr. Arminian, you better be saving the lost on that basketball team 
Because the $3 million that it took to put up that basketball gymnasium, you just take that and divide it by $30 a soul, which a good missionary society used to be able to pull off a 100 years ago, and do you know how many souls you've sent to hell because you want to bounce the round ball? Do you know how many of these churches that believe in missions have a gymnasium? The height of hypocrisy. Do you know what the value is of Bob Jones' art gallery? They're not going to tell you. And yet they will beg the last nickel out of students who sit there and have paid a high rate of tuition to go to that school. They will beg the last nickel out of their pockets for, pre, for Bible conference missionary projects while they have an art gallery sitting down there valued at tens of millions of dollars. How many souls have gone to hell for Catholic art sitting in the Bob Jones Art Gallery? How many souls have gone to hell to have a 20-foot-tall preacher with a 24-inch frame that has John baptizing Jesus by pouring a cup of water over his head? How many souls have gone to hell for having a picture of a man cutting the foreskin off the Lord Jesus Christ? How many souls have gone to hell for having a picture of Mary, of Jesus sucking on one breast and playing with the other with his hand? If you don't know what I'm talking about, Take a tour. You can quote Revelation 17, 1 through 6 as you walk through it about the great whore of Rome that's the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. But they will beg the last nickel out of a student's pocket. And you should hear the stories that are told from that pulpit during Bible conference week about students who have given and given beyond and given beyond and beyond in order to save souls while they have an art gallery like that or a gymnasium, or a fancy parsonage, or anything else, if you're going to believe that it's sending the gospel to the lost that gets them to heaven, then you better live like it. We don't believe that it's the gospel that gets the elect to heaven, and we live like it. We enjoy the life God's given us, because Paul told the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God hath given us richly all things to enjoy. And we do spread the gospel. I'll bet we're in more countries on a weekly basis than you are, Mr. Arminian. And we're going there the way Paul sent us there. We go to the marketplace to find those that are interested in seeking the truth. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. My dear brethren and Mr. Arminian, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Why did the Apostle Paul tell Timothy that even if he was a perfect minister, he still couldn't get the job done? But you think you can get the job done being far imperfect Compared to Timothy. It says in 2 Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord, this is Paul to Timothy, a ministerial charge must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. What makes the success of any spreading of the gospel? God granting repentance. Now those that believe in free grace salvation, you've got to understand what the words free grace salvation means to everyone else in this country. Free grace salvation means the opposite of lordship salvation. Free grace salvation is you invite Jesus into your heart as your Savior. He's not your Lord, you're not repenting, and you're not committing to live a changed life. That is called free grace salvation today. 
Why does it say that God has to grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth? It's getting me back on lordship salvation. You don't want to get me there. We want to finish this on a timely basis. I want you to notice here that a minister doing exactly what Paul told him to do isn't the final determining factor even in the conversion of a soul because God has to grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. It is not methods. It is God's grace. It is God's power that can grant repentance to a soul who's been opposing himself to the truth and all of a sudden things fall into place and he has a changed heart and a changed outlook and he changes his life by repenting. And he, he delivers himself from the snare of the devil by resisting the devil that he once was in cohorts with by the grace of God Amen. who grants repentance. Amen. Mr. Arminian, I'm so troubled by Matthew 15. Will you help me? Why did Jesus let the blind lead the blind into a ditch if he was the light of the world? Why did Jesus say, leave them alone? If the apostles were to leave them alone, they're going to go to hell. But Jesus said, leave them alone. Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. They be blind leaders of the blind. Let them both fall into the ditch. That is my Savior. Because I read that of Him in this book, in the red writing, and I believe it. And though we sound Neanderthal, And though I sound like a caveman, and though I sound abusive and arrogant, that is what the Bible says, Jesus said, when the apostles came to him and said, don't you know that the Pharisees were just offended by what you said? That whatsoever goes into a man's mouth comes out in the draft? That you know what you eat ends up in the sewer? Don't you know that talking like that offended them? This is Matthew 15, 12 through 15, if any of you are looking at it, or any of you hearing this sermon want to look at it. I want to ask Mr. Arminian, how is that evangelistically minded? To say, leave them alone. I want to ask Mr. Arminian, why would the light of the world say they be blind, leaders of the blind, let them both fall into the ditch? Why didn't he shine his light on them? Because he had shined his light already by his prophets. And they had hardened their hearts against him and he came in judgment. That they that see might not see. I've already mentioned how in Colossians chapter 1 verses 6 and verse 23, the great commission was fulfilled exactly as it was given in all the world and every creature under heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and you read it last evening and it's such a wonderful description of the Apostle Paul's perspective on preaching and his method of preaching, his method of preparation, his method of planning, his method of market research. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Was Paul trained well enough that he could have come with excellency of speech and of wisdom? Have you ever read him on trial with King Agrippa? Could he handle himself? Well, have you read about him in Acts chapter 22 when he's on trial before all the Jewish leadership? Does he handle himself okay? How about when he preached in Antioch in Acts chapter 13? Oh yes, he was an eloquent man. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined 
not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Could the Apostle Paul have waxed philosophical? Could he have waxed economical? Could he have waxed historical? Had he been taught sufficiently that he could have given them lots of interesting things in other fields of knowledge? He chose not to. I determined not to do that. But I was only going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Is there a way to preach so that men believe the gospel, but their faith stands upon the foundation of the wisdom of men? Can churches grow by presenting the gospel in such a way that men will believe it, but they're not even elect, nor are they born again? It would be upon the wisdom of God. A charismatic, entertaining, speaker, entertainer can build a church. They do it all over the place. They are the personality of the church. It is a personality cult. They follow the man, not the Word of God from the man. And the Apostle Paul would not let that happen. You can build gigantic organizations if you're charismatic enough and the Lord gives you over enough to the powers of darkness to assist your ministry. And so they explode. Where do you think Mormonism came from? From a little peeping Joseph. Joseph was a peeper. That's not a peeping Tom. That's why I called him a peeping Joseph. Joseph Smith, the father of Mormonism, was a peeper. He went around with stones in his pocket and said he could look into the stones and tell a person's future. That's the father of their religion. How could Mormonism explode on the scenes from such a little scam artist? Because when you've got a personality and you're telling men they can have more than one wife, I can tell what's going to happen to your church. It's going to grow until it gets to Nauvoo, Illinois, across the border from Missouri, and some Missouri men didn't like a polygamist in their neighborhood. And he was in prison, and they went and pulled him out and killed him. And so Joseph Smith became a martyr for the Mormon church. And Brigham Young took over. And that's where BYU University came from. And on and on we could go. My whole point being, I want you to understand that preaching is not an art form of how attractive we can make it. Preaching is to be done according to the Word of God of how plainly we can present God's Word. This is what the Bible says. This is the truth. I declare unto you Jesus Christ. I open and allege that salvation is by these means according to the Word of God. And you quote Scripture from this passage and from that passage as it is written. And again, and again. That's what the Apostle Paul would do. Is that entertaining? Not entertaining at all. The Bible says it's very unentertaining in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. It's here a little, there a little, here a little, there a little. Precept upon precept, line upon line. Why is preaching that way? That they may go and fall and be broken and snared and taken. Preaching is boring to the natural man. 
And so there are few natural men that sneak into the true churches of Christ, though there be some. There are tares everywhere. But that plain presentation of Jesus Christ, an elect man loves it. That's all he wants to hear. I wish he would just get off of politics. A child of God in a, in a congregation where the pastor gets off on politics is sitting there getting upset because the pastor is wasting his time with current events of a political nature or of a financial nature or storytelling. Give me the Word of God. Did you read recently a letter from a woman in another continent who said, all I want is the unadulterated words of God from the pulpit. I sent it to you. You should have read it. It should have encouraged your heart. My whole point right now is talking to Mr. Arminian and asking him about evangelism. Why would the Apostle Paul dumb down his message and determine to preach in such a way that it would be offensive and boring to most hearers? So that their faith would stand in the power of God. That when a person believed, it would be the savour of life unto life. A man can preach in such a way that it, that reprobates believe. Because church becomes a Sunday club to do something for one hour. Listen, if the rock and roll music is loud enough, and you can come in the clothes that you wore to bed on Saturday night, and they have Starbucks with a couple shots of espresso waiting for you when you come to the door, you're going to go to that church. One hour. They don't care how you live. One hour. You can rub elbows and shout and lift your hands and jump and shake and sway. And you've got a minister up there doing the chicken strut in front of you. The church will explode in size. And they do. But just open this Bible. Turn from one place, quote a verse. Turn to another place, quote another verse. Turn to another place, quote another verse. And say these three verses come together to teach us this. About Jesus Christ, they're long gone. The Apostle Paul would say, the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. And we live there right now. It has never been as true as it is right now. Mr. Arminian, why did Paul dumb down the gospel? So that no believer would believe because of Paul's eloquence, personality, presentation, illustrations, or anything else. It was going to be by the power of God. The only one that someone could ever believe what I preach is by the power of God, except for the few goats and tares that the devil sows in every church. Mr. Armini, help me, please. I know you're an expert on these things because you hold conferences all over the country. How long was Paul's average invitation at the end of a sermon? You should know a lot about it. You hold conferences everywhere on soul winning. What were Paul's favorite funeral dirges to get folks to respond to the invitation? What did he ask the organist to pipe up? How does the organist know in an Arminian church that she can start to feel by the cadence and the time on the clock <laughs> that she needs to get up and make her, make her way out of her pew up to the front and sit down there at the organ, get that thing warmed up, because she's about to start playing just as I am. Well, if it's just as you are, then God's going to save you without you getting to be something that you are not. So just relax. But no, they're going to try to get people down the aisle with just as I am. You know, it's hard for me to sing just as I am. The words of the song just as I am are wonderful. But if I even hear 
that music, my skin crawls and the white, my, my wife's skin crawls worse than mine because the words at least can overpower some of that organ background that I'm still hearing. We're only going to sing it one time and the door of opportunity for you to go to heaven is going to be closed forever. And just sing it and sing it over and over again, slow, just as I am. But you know, if you go to an Arminian church and you have believed that, you know, you stand there and you have tears in your eyes. And if somebody comes forward, the tears make it to your cheeks because you believe that a soul's being saved. But that is no different than a Mormon standing around an underground baptism having tears come to their eyes as they have a brother baptized for their dead relatives by proxy in a Joseph Smith baptism in an underground baptistry. Tears in eyes mean absolutely nothing except you were poorly taught and you get moved emotionally by things that are not true. Amen. And I want all of you to understand that. For everything that you can say about Arminian Baptists, I will raise others. Do you know that we just sang a song by Fanny Crosby? And I was taught to love Fanny Crosby, and she was a baby-sprinkling heretic. She couldn't even figure out the doctrine of baptism. She was a Methodist. How about Isaac Watts, a baby-sprinkling heretic? How about John Kent? Do you think I was excited to sing that first song by John Kent? I wanted to shut up. I wanted to jump up and shout. He was a baby-sprinkler. Don't you ever get emotional about anybody and don't get emotional about anything that is not found in God's Word and an invitation with people coming forward to invite Jesus into their hearts is not in God's Word. You're getting emotional the same way Pavlov's dogs got emotional. They heard the bell ring and they salivated. You hear just as I am and you salivate because who's going to come forward? I'm going to eat them up. I'm going to have another notch on my gospel belt. I'm going to win another soul. That's all that it is. They fed a dog. They rang a bell. They fed the dog and rang a bell. They fed the dog and rang a bell. Then they rang the bell and the dog salivated. Now, when you've heard just as I am every single week of your life and you hear just as I am, you salivate. Somebody's going to get saved. You get teary-eyed. Tears come to your cheeks. Is there any evidence of truth? None. The person comes forward and gets saved, kneels. The pastor rejoices. They turn to a new hymn. There's a new name written down in glory. And then you never see the person again. That is the general rule. You never see the person again. Mr. Arminian, that's what I think of your evangelistic system. You still haven't told me what your favorite funeral dirge is. The cost per soul, I've already mentioned that. You've got to go look at the cost per soul in a Google search box. It's, it's so interesting. If the heathen go to hell without missionaries and missionaries do not go without financial support, then what is it that keeps souls Jesus died for out of hell? Silver and gold. It's money. Mr. Arminian, why does it say in 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. Why in the world would John waste ink, pen, time, and effort, postage, and an envelope to send an epistle to those that believed in the name of the Son of God? Shouldn't he have been writing, These things have I written unto you that don't believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, that you could then have eternal life. He didn't do it that way. That's a wonderful verse, 1 John 5, 13. 
That helps explain what John wrote in other places. Because he wrote to them that believe that they might know that they had eternal life. So the things that he wrote are, when he mentions believing, he that believeth hath everlasting life. Does that he that believeth hath everlasting life mean if you invite Jesus into your heart, then you will get everlasting life? Or is that saying he that believeth in the present tense is in possession of eternal life? Because his purpose is to write to believers that they can know that they have eternal life and that they can believe some more for some greater assurance. That's evangelism in the Bible. How many epistles in the New Testament were written to unbelievers? It'd be interesting to read one. I don't know what they'd say. I know you're not going to believe the, anything that I say in the following verses, but let me lay a few on you anyway. Do we want to find God's elect that do not understand the truth and show to them the way of God more perfectly? Do we want to find an Apollos? We work at it every day. We, we should be living lives for it every day. But we are not looking for Judas Iscariots to tell them that if they'll say the sinner's prayer, they can go to heaven when they die. We are looking for Apollos that we can just show to him the way of God more perfectly. Aquila and Priscilla were a great evangelistic team. That's in the last five verses of Acts chapter 18. Mr. Armenian, before I leave the cost per soul, what's the cost per soul of your favorite domestic missionary enterprise? Your favorite foreign missionary enterprise? What's the cost per soul? Total, bu- total annual budget divided by souls saved in a year. That comes up with a dollar amount. It used to be about 30 bucks. Foreign missions could be 17. It could be in the teens. There's some fascinating discussions that would be in, mis- in, in missionary papers of Arminians explaining why it was easier to save a soul in other parts of the world than in America. You know, we're all living a little too comfortably. You've got to really work hard to get an American through the eye of, an eye of a needle, if you're following me correctly. Mr. Armenian, if I found a missionary effort that saved souls at a 25% discount to your favorite, would you switch? If the cost per soul is 100 bucks, Mr. Armenian, you make 100 grand a year, how many souls do you damn by not living in light of eternity? Surely you could have got by on 12,000 a year, thus damning 880 souls per year. Because you could have got by on 12,000, 1,000 bucks a month. I can show you how you could live on 1,000 bucks a month. And that'd be 88,000 for missions. And if it's 100 bucks a soul, that's 880 souls in heaven because you were a consistent Arminian, the first one ever. That doesn't mean that there are not Arminians that sincerely believe what they believe. It means that there is no Arminian that lives out his theology. Except maybe Mother Teresa or something like that. She was an Arminian. Why not? Why did Jesus drive so many away with hard sayings in John chapter 6? Why would Jesus say something hard and everybody turn and go away? The disciples came and told him. Was it because he didn't know? Was it because he didn't understand that it was hard? Was it an unusual audience that he had said these things to before and this audience just took it the wrong way? John chapter 6. Why did he keep saying, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you? Why did Jesus keep saying that? Because he wanted to demonstrate that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. 
And if my father draws him, he's going to like even this language. Do you 12 want to go away as well? Now, how's that for a missionary, evangelistic-minded Savior? But Peter knew. Let me close with this point. This is my favorite point, and it's always been my favorite since I was a... And I hope that it's important to you. It's the glory of God. What scheme of salvation gives the glory to God? Arminians typically believe God gets glory by soul winners doing the real work of getting people saved, and He will somehow save face in the day of judgment when He must damn most of those that He tried to save. You say, well, you're not presenting it what they really believe. I don't know how to present what they really believe. I just presented it as accurately as I know how. God will get glory by soul winners doing the real work of getting people saved, and He will somehow save face in the day of judgment when He damns most of those that He tried to save. What scheme gives God all the glory? The one that chooses men or the one that men choose Him? The one where Jesus Christ loses none or the one where Jesus Christ loses most? The one where the Holy Spirit is irresistible and regenerates every single one given to Jesus Christ by the Father? Or the one that can't regenerate anyone unless they exercise their sinful will to get born again? Isn't it... Which one gives God the glory? We've asked so many questions leading up to this point I hardly need to ask any more. If God the Father loved all men equally, indiscriminately, and Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all men, and the Holy Spirit convicts all men equally, what makes the difference between a person in heaven and a person in hell? We are reduced to what that man did and those men that assisted him in doing what he did because God's love, Christ's death, and the Spirit's conviction didn't do it because most loved, died for, and convicted are in hell. So which one gives God the glory? Do those suffering in hell bring God glory? Or do those suffering in hell cause God grief? Mr. Arminian, you've got to answer these questions. How does God get glory from the eternal suffering of those that He loved and killed His Son for? Do we believe that God's going to get glory from those in hell? The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, And this is an extreme example to get the point across in case you're doubting how far you should take it. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. God made them for himself. Proverbs 16.4 Which provides greater glory to the giver, a conditional offer or an unconditional bequeathal? Oh, Lord, thank you for bequeathing salvation to us like a last will and testament. And you sent Jesus Christ who could die for the eternal, immortal God. What a doctrine of salvation. So many more things could be asked. If an offer requires a difficult condition, and for a man dead in trespasses and sins to believe the gospel, that's pretty difficult. It's like kind of impossible. But if an offer requires a difficult condition, is it a reward or is it a gift? If you have to perform a condition, it's a reward. And if it's a reward, who gets the glory? The man earning it. The man performing the condition. How much distance is there, Mr. Arminian, between potter and clay? How much distance is there between potter and clay? Who chose that illustration? 
the God of heaven did. That was not some wild preacher running amok and presenting God harder than he is. That is God. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? That isn't a wild preacher. That is the God, the Holy Spirit. That's the dove that they want to paint on their church buildings. That's the dove of the Bible. Which one gives God all the glory? A short little exercise with you. This is what it really comes down to. And this is as fair as I'll ever be with an Arminian. The Bible is understood by a set of presuppositions. Even an Arminian has his presuppositions. And with his presuppositions that God loves everybody, Christ died for all the sins of all men, the Holy Spirit convicts them all, he then goes into the Bible and forces everything to meet his presuppositions. And it can be done. It can be done. Okay? We have a set of presuppositions. And we go into the Bible and fit everything to our presuppositions. Because see, we have to rightly divide the word of truth. And Arminian can divide the word of truth to support his presuppositions. Do you know our presuppositions? Those are our assumptions of faith. Thank you. Don't. Our presuppositions are the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Number one, man is unable to do anything pleasing to God. Do you remember those? Okay, that's total depravity. Unable. Proof number two is the Bible expressly denies man's will or works involved in his salvation. Express denial. Proof number three. Faith and good works are the result of salvation, not the condition for it. Number four, God never ordained the gospel nor any of the ordinance to give eternal life to anyone. Proof number five, and you know all of these can be developed into a sermon and have been on our website. Number five is, Jesus Christ is the Savior by himself. By himself he purged us from our sins. He is the second Adam by himself. It is by the obedience of one. One, Jesus Christ. Proof number six, all of these are important. Proof number six, there are example exceptions in the Bible. And they are exceptions. The general rule of the Bible is this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What do we believe? What do we mean by coming? We don't mean coming in the resurrection into heaven. We mean coming to belief in the gospel. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Can you understand that it's talking about believing? Because a few verses later it says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And it's talking about believing the gospel. But there are exceptions in the Bible. There is Romans 11, which we are coming to shortly, where men, a a specific, small, time-limited, racial-limited group of men were enemies of the gospel for the gospel's sake. Saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Exceptions. 
First Corinthians chapter 10 tells us about the exceptions of that generation that left Egypt and was in the wilderness. They were the beloved children of God, but they did not believe the gospel. Therefore, God was not pleased with them and overthrew them in the wilderness. They were his children and he chastened them. There can be no doubt about that. They ate and drank of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. So we have this sixth proof of unconditional salvation that there were men saved without conditions. In that category, we would put infants. In that category, we would put John the Baptist, who was born again in his mother's womb. Number seven, God gets all the glory in an unconditional plan of salvation. Those are the seven proofs of unconditional salvation, which is what we believe in this church and why we ask questions of Arminians. Now the Arminian, what I just told you was that an Arminian that wanted to be honest with the Word of God could set up his presuppositions and then he could try to rightly divide the Word of Truth to allocate the verses in the Bible in agreement with his presuppositions. Here's what he has to come up with. And then you decide if the Lord has shown us the truth or not. And I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. We are dealing with something that men have shed blood over for... 2,000 years. We are dealing with something that has led to theological arguments and debates and separation of men and anathemas and church discipline action when we, de- when we're, when we deal with what we are right now. There have to be seven anti-proofs. Proof number one, man is not dead. Do you want to take your position on that one? The Armenian has to. The Armenian has to say man is not dead. He is just sick and I can help him with medicine. So only a few of you are going to understand that right now I am, I am being very fair with you and Arminians and telling you what it really boils down to. I could just use our verses and ask those questions like I did, but I'm bringing it right down to this. For our seven proofs, they have to have seven anti-proofs. Man is dead, our proof. They have to say man is alive. Who are they siding with with that little jewel? The devil himself. The Bible expressly denies man's will and man's works involved in his eternal life. What are they denying then to take up their doctrine? The Bible itself. It's an anti-proof. They have to. Faith and good works are the results of eternal life to us. To them, faith and good works are the condition for eternal life. So they end up with a conditional system because faith and works cannot be separated the way they want to do it. When faith is separated from works in Romans chapter 3 and 4, it is faith separated from the works of the law of Moses. Faith without works, in, in the sense of good works, can never be separated. They go together. So they, have to den- so they have to make faith and good works the conditions for eternal life. It's their anti-proof of establishing how they're going to view the Bible. The purpose of ordinances. The ordinances are simply to show a memorial of what Jesus Christ did for us. We baptize in a picture of his burial and his resurrection. We have the Lord's Supper to show his death till he comes. They have to put reality into it. Because they're not going to admit that the purpose of the ordinances is just, is not to have anything to do with eternal life. Now they could on that one. Try to do that. But do you know what most Arminians have done? They have made those essential for salvation. 
That's why infant baptism and infant regeneration in in baptismal waters is so popular. It's the vast majority of Christendom. When they come to number five, which is one, was obedient for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to make it two or three or four or five. They have to make it any number but zero or one. It's there. It's the anti-proof. They have to. They have to take the position that it's two or more, because it cannot be one. Because if it's one, it rules out anyone cooperating in their salvation. They don't have any exceptions in the Bible. They will talk about infants. They will make an exception for infants, but they don't have a Bible basis for doing it unless they rely on David's statement about his son. They don't know about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because those people didn't believe the gospel. They don't know about Romans chapter 11 because those people didn't believe the gospel. They don't know about Hebrews 3 and 4 because those people didn't believe the gospel. They wouldn't say that John the Baptist was saved in his mother's womb. He just had the Holy Ghost, and someday when he was about 12 and past the age of accountability, he invited Jesus into his heart, hopefully before he baptized him. So there's no exceptions. They don't have biblical evidence for exceptions to deal with these categories that they're constantly asked about. How do babies get to heaven? How do the heathen get to heaven? How did men in the Old Testament get to heaven? How did men get to heaven in the Old Testament? The answer is given at the Council of Jerusalem by Peter and the apostles that said, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they, referring to their fathers under the Old Testament. They understood that they in the New Testament were as dependent upon the grace of God to be saved as much as those under the Old Testament. And when it says by means of death, it was to deliver those that were under the first covenant. It was by means of death. It wasn't by any other means. And so they have no exceptions. And then they get to this seventh one, and they can't give God all the glory because they have to have an anti-proof to our proof. Our proof is God gets all the glory. That God has arranged it in such a way by choosing the poor, the weak, the ignorant, the foolish to save them, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence, but flesh will glory in the presence of their God and the presence of their Savior if... Their scheme were right, which it is not. And so when you look at the presuppositions by which we approach the Bible, and you look at the anti-proofs that they have to come up with to oppose each of ours, we will gladly oppose theirs. If they want to take the position that God loves all men, we will overthrow it with the Bible and with logic. Let them overthrow our seven. They cannot. But I want to tell you that that's how we approach the Bible. And so what we come down to as a church, that by the grace of God, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our understanding, and bringing beautiful feet to preach these things to us, we see seven proofs of unconditional salvation, and to take them away destroys the glory of God. And that, to me, was the strongest of all. It's why it's number seven. Which plan of salvation gives all the glory to God. If our scheme, which does give all the glory to God, is not true, then we have devised the plan of salvation for God's glory better than He devised. And that is not true. Because there's going to be no flesh that glories in His presence. Much more could be said. I'm so thankful for what the Lord's shown us. We could ask Mr. Arminian about a bunch of his Bible corruptions in the Scriptures. I hope you remember a few things about the grammar of salvation that I've taught you in the past. When you go to 1 John 5, 1, and it says, Whosoever believeth on the Son is born of God. Do you know which event comes first? 
Are you so simple in the English language because you have one verb preceding the other in a sentence that you think that's the order? Or are we supposed to determine time order of events by verb tenses? And remember how we've gone into 1 John and seen that if believing is what causes you to be born again, then other verses in chapters 3 and 4 have you loving the brethren in order to be born again, have you being righteous in order to be born again, and we know all of that's false. We know that the whole epistle was written to those that already believe that they might know that they had eternal life. And a man that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, he is already born of God. A man that loves the brethren, he's already born of God. By this we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. And so forth and so on. That's how it goes. And that's how the gospel is to us, the savour of life unto life. Romans chapter 10, next Lord's Day. I hope that this has been helpful to you over the last several weeks to understand what we believe, why we believe it, how ridiculous it is to believe something so radically different as the Arminians believe. May the Lord bless us to be solidly established in the truth of His Word. May we see that truth, when it's truth, can take all sorts of questions and we have answers for all their questions. They can ask us about babies. They can ask us about, but why people don't have a chance according to your plan. And we know that the chance was in the Garden of Eden. We have answers to every question they can throw at us. But we have just a couple questions they can't answer. Just a couple. May the Lord bless us. And let me finish with what's the most important thing that's been said today. It was said by the psalm reader. It was said in the first service. It's been said in prayers, and I'm saying it now. If we can mock Arminians, but we are not going to live the holy lives that the truth deserves and demands and our God expects, then we should prepare to be mocked in this life and in the great day of judgment. Because to whom much is given, much shall be required. Let us adorn the gospel by living perfect, holy, godly, righteous lives. And may the Lord bless the doctrine of His salvation to bear the fruit that it was intended to bear. That God had chosen a peculiar people as His own to be zealous of good works. And may that be true of us. All praise and glory to Jesus Christ, my Savior.